Hello and welcome to Suede. This is Sarah Osteen and I am excited today because I'm doing my first face-to-face interview. Um, I'm also interviewing a really fascinating person. I'm interviewing a friend of mine named Celia Beasley who is a film editor but and we could spend the entire hour talking about that but we're actually gonna be talking about her last eight eleven months where she traveled around the globe with her family so celia thanks so much for being here and taking the time to talk to me today thank you for having me yeah we'll be sure to minimize hand gestures as (laughs) methods for communication i know that you took 11 months traveled around the globe with your family you have two children who are going to be in second and fourth grade is that right third and sixth grade third and sixth great. Oh my gosh, I'm totally off. So you took them out of school, went to multiple different continents. So start at the beginning. How did you decide to do this? What motivated you? So my husband, Adam, and I lived in Madagascar um, Mm -hmm. for two and a half years back in 2005 to 2008. Um, He had gotten a degree in international development and public administration Mm -hmm. at the UW uh, Evans School here in Seattle. And we kind of talked about, we'd been living in Seattle for about four years at that point, And I was working in film and sort of doing a lot of different things in film. And, um, I think we were both ready to just try something different and maybe be in an environment where, at least for me, I would sort of have a chance to maybe reevaluate the kinds of projects that I wanted to do. And I was interested in documentary and I was interested in doing stuff abroad. So, um, he got this opportunity, this fellowship to go to Madagascar. And so we went and ended up staying for two and a half years. And, and it was really fascinating to live there and really just see the way that people live differently and a very, very different environment. I mean, we were in a very privileged situation as expats and, you know, we were sort of in under the umbrella of this organization. So there were, our housing was paid for. We had guards, we had to have staff. It was very weird in that way, but we were able to go into the field, into all these different parts of the country and really see people living traditionally. And, um, and that was very eye opening for us. Um, and so while we were there, we did meet some other people who were raising a family that way and who were traveling where they would be in one posting for about three years and then they would move to another place. And we contemplated that, but ultimately decided that we wanted our kids to grow up in one place and be from somewhere um, and also be closer to family and that sort of thing. So we decided to raise our kids in Seattle, but we wanted we always had this plan to go away at some point, go for like a year and either live somewhere in a very different country for in one place for a year or travel. We weren't really sure at the time. So we always had kind of had that in the back of our minds. And then it was a matter of the right time. The kids are not too young and with work and school and all of those things to manage. And, um, in February of 2018, um, things just sort of were kind of a crossroads where for Adam's work, he was in a place where he was kind of ready to make a change and I'm a freelancer. So it's easier for me to kind of take a break. And, you know, there's never a perfect time to do something like this. It's like having a child. There's always a good reason why it's not a good time, (laughs) but at some point, you know, you just kind of have to do it. And so we decided to go and, um, we decided in February and we left in July. So it was a, a pretty f- short window, yeah. but, um, I'm glad that it was that short. Cause we actually thought about at one point delaying it a year. And at that point, then it almost felt like we would just lose our steam. Cause I think there's a point where it's too much, too much prep in advance of leaving. Yeah. So going back to Madagascar, 
I had the opportunity to listen to your NPR diaries. I don't even know how you got that opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other story. Yeah, But uh, you chronicled components of your journey, of your experience there. Did you, did you feel like there was something that you had that was left undone or how did that really connect to the desire to, to take this trip with your kids? Something that we experienced in Madagascar that really impacted me while we were there and then coming back was when you're in a place like that, you are just confronted with the inequality of the world. It's just in your face so blatantly all the time. And obviously we see that in ways here in our world in Seattle and in the U.S., but it's so extreme in Madagascar. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. I think it's like the ninth poorest country or something. Mm-hmm. And so we were constantly confronted with the fact that we coming from the U.S. or Europe or this, you know, first world countries, kind of anyone who comes from a first world country and goes to Madagascar is going to be astronomically wealthier mm-hmm. than 95% of the people there. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you feel so you're sort of like, what, how is the world so unfair and, and kind of what can I do about it? And it's, 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 it's a heavy thing to experience every day. And obviously that's a ridiculous thing to say, cause we are so lucky that we don't have to be dealing with that every day. But, um, I think that just seeing that every single day, it gives it such a different perspective on why we make the choices that we make. And, and it's not, like every day in Seattle, I go around thinking, you know, how would somebody in Madagascar react to this or what would it be like? But it, I think just, just getting out of our world, our day to day. And and it's easy when we're in our Seattle world to just be concerned with all the same things and like, where are my kids going to school and are they doing the right activities? And, you know, is my house the right way or should I go to an addition? And, you know, like where's, what ski resort should we go skiing in? I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's these sort of, when we talk about first world problems, they really are first world problems. And so, to just have a little, some of that perspective to go into a place like Madagascar and, and see people living in a completely different world, a completely different way. And I think both for the perspective of like, wow, I am so lucky and privileged and I have all these things. And are these things really so important to me? But also I, and I think about this with kids too, kids that grow up, even if they're expatriates and they're, you know, they grow up going into all these different places, just to know that there's lots of different ways to live, I think is important and that there's different things are, are important in different places. And so, you know, if you grow up in an environment where everyone's sort of on the same, on the same escalator, as it were, you know, with the same priorities and the Mm -hmm. same things that they value and the, even if they're, you know, things that I also value that, it's nice to see that, you know, in India, maybe, you know, in this town in India, people care about totally different things or, you know, it's not always, these are the things that we always have to juggle. There's lots of different ways to be and to live in the world. And I think that's liberating from, for us, just from a sort of a mindset place to think, okay, you know, if I, if I don't find my place in this world that is, that I'm in right now, then there is somewhere where I will find a way to be at peace or things that motivate me or just interest me. It doesn't all have to be the way it is right here in my surroundings. Well, that's so liberating. I had never, uh, to be honest, I didn't think that would be part of your answer. I, 
Uh, that's a really nice gift to give your kids that they don't, they're not stuck with this in some ways. There are other options for them. Uh, I think if I were, you know, had the opportunity to do something like that too, I, I, this is loaded, but we live in a very beautiful community that is quite homogeneous. It was that part of the motivation as well. Definitely. I mean, when we were living in Madagascar originally, and we decided to come back to Seattle and raise our kids here. And we have a great community of friends and we love it here. And there's lots of things we love about it. But the fact that it is very homogenous and it's very white and it's mm-hmm. very similar in terms of people have similar education level, people have similar economic backgrounds. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's very much, it's very homogenous for mm-hmm. that's really the best way to put it. And I think that especially going to a country where physically you are very different from everyone around you Mm. for us white people who are the majority in the U S you know, we can't really ever understand what it's like to walk Mm -hmm. as a minority in the U S I mean, we can intellectually understand and kind of think we, okay. And you know, we read blogs and we hear people talk about it, but we have never, we can never really understand that in our heart to know what it's like to walk in to a place and be the only one of your kind as it were constantly and be looked at constantly and constantly just, just, I mean, we, I don't think there's any way to reproduce that in America. If you're, if you're in the, if you're in the majority, it's just, it's just not possible to live that experience. And so going to Madagascar or Tanzania where another place we went to on our trip or even any of the Asian countries, we're the minority there. And obviously it's very different to be a white person in Madagascar than it is to be an African-American in the U S no question there in terms of the power dynamic and history and all of that stuff. But compared to our world in Seattle, when we went to Tanzania, for example, I mean, 98% of the people there are African or what we would call black. And everyone of every social status of every job of every position is African. So the president is African, the lawyers are African, the doctors are African, the market people are African, the teachers, the bus drivers, the people, the homeless people, like everyone, Mm. everyone is. And so um, living in a very homogenous environment that we do in Seattle, to to have a situation where everyone of all classes of society and of all roles look like what a minority is in the U.S., I think it's important for our eyeballs to see that, to witness that because it kind of, and it, and it's, it's never something that would be, it's not like a version of that exists in the U S unfortunately, but I hope that it sort of shakes up a little bit, whatever unconscious bias we have or whatever ideas we have about what certain kind of roles in society look like when you go to a country and everybody in that country all of those roles are occupied by people who are a minority in your own society. So when we were in Madagascar, this is one of my Madagascar diaries, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but um, when we were in Madagascar, I had a realization at one point after a while that I wasn't noticing people's race because everyone around me was Malagasy. And I was the different one. I was the one that people would point at and call out to. And Mm. I would get treated differently, you know, better or worse, most of the time better, unfortunately, sort of because Mm. of the history of colonialization and all that stuff. There's a very weird power dynamic there. But, but I was the one that was noticed as opposed to 
in Seattle where it is very white and we notice the non-white people um, and they get treated differently often, better or worse, again, context and stuff. But, but for me to be in that situation was just the tiniest little like teeny, teeny little speck of a window of what it would be like to be a minority. And I think that's a very important experience to have both as an adult, but also for our kids to, to see and experience that as they're growing up in this world and navigating all this stuff and understanding about, about race and about ethnicity and power and all these different things that are very much part of our conversation right now in the culture. But to, to just have that, that see that version of, of the world where, you know, everyone in a position of power is black. I mean, that's how it is in Tanzania because everyone is black, (laughs) everyone. So that shouldn't, so for them to see a version of the world where that is not, an anomaly, but that is the norm. And, you know, then I don't know what the conclusion is to that. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm skipping to the end by asking this, but can you see after going through this trip and obviously I want to hear about the the trip, but can you notice anything different about your children? I mean, what a ridiculous question, like has their unconscious bias changed, but (laughs) I, I, I don't know. Do you think you can tell any differences in terms of the way they look at the world and our ethnicities and race? And, um, it, you know, it's hard to say because I also think so much of how we react to things is based on the environment in which we're in. And not to say that we come here and everybody's racist at all, but you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the same way when it's like when, when in Rome, right? So like when you're in another country, you just, you're like, okay, I'm just kind of going with the flow here. Mm -hmm. This is what, you know, people are doing and this is how people shop and this is how people travel. So I'm just going to do what they do. Right. And then you come in home and, people are concerned about these things and these things and you sort of fall, you know, you sort of go into whatever flow you're in. Um, and so I, I don't know if it's really possible to kind of land back into your own culture, like as though you're an alien that's suddenly like, you know, (laughs) dropped from another planet and like, Oh, look, now I'm here. And I'm sort of, you know, seeing everything at this fresh eye, but I mean, I hope so. And with the kids after our trip, it's hard to know exactly what the impact was. And as much as we'd love to have these like nice little phrases that they, you know, little observations and stuff, I think it's probably going to take a while for things to percolate. But also when we were planning the trip, um, Adam and I, my husband, we, we made basically a list of the, what our goals were for this trip. And we wanted to be really specific because we didn't want to put on there a goal that was maybe not attainable. So we talked a lot about this sort of the exposure part of it. And we're exposing our kids to all these different ways of being in the world. And and we have the things we hope they take away from that, like being appreciative of what we have, for example, or valuing, you know, certain things over certain things. But we couldn't, we realized if we list that as a goal and they don't come away with that, then is our whole trip a failure? I mean, that would be really terrible, right? So we basically decided, you know, what we can do is expose them. We can expose them to other ways of living in the world, but we can't make them have a realization. You know, we can talk about stuff. I mean, we did, we talked about a lot of things, things would come up. I mean, things about poverty, things about corruption, things about inequality, things about, you know, freedom of the press and freedom of speech. I mean, we went to some countries where there's the press is really limited and, you know, so that, that kind of thing, sort of these bigger topics, um, values, if you will, but we 
didn't want to shove it down their throat so that they felt like, you know, their job was to learn this lesson and then be able to sort of spit it out. Um, but we did have to be really honest with ourselves and say like, hopefully they'll come away from this trip really loving travel and having had this great experience, but they might also decide that they don't like travel. I mean, who knows, right, you know, right, right. and, and, and we can't have having them love travel be one of our goals because we can't control what's happening in their heads. You know, we can't yeah. decide for them what their takeaway from this trip is. So all we can do is expose them to these things and then kind of cross our fingers and hope that the things that we value come through to them, but we can't know that hundred percent. But Overall, I think, I think they did, you know, take sort of take away the things we wanted them to, yeah. or at least they're good at faking them. Uh, what were some of your other goals, if you can mm -hmm. share them? So our three goals were to have a significant experience together as a family. So all kind of experience something together. And part of that was because in our day-to-day -day lives, we kind of scatter, you know, work and he goes to work and school and school. And then we come together in the evening and we talk about our day and stuff, but, but to really have something that we share together, that's whenever we we're on vacation or we do a trip, that's really where you have these moments and you're like, Oh, remember that, remember that crazy car ride or remember this hike that we took or whatever it is. Those are the really things that, that stay with you. So that was one of the goals was have a significant experience together as a family. Second goal was to spend undistracted time. And that was really related to the phones and the emails and the texts and just constantly having something that wants a piece of you that's pulling you away from what you're doing. And I kind of resist the word mindful because it's so trendy right now, but basically yeah. being present, right? Being able to be in an environment where we're just experiencing what we're experiencing and not being like pulled in a million different directions. And then the third one was expose our kids to other ways of living yeah. in the world. And that was it. And then we had to be careful to not add in all these other hopes and expectations like, you know, teach our kids uh, about you know, disparities in wealth or, um, you know, have them learn how to be tough or resilient and, or, uh, you know, things that were sort of, we can't, uh, we can't control that. Exactly. So we could hope that that would happen. And some of them did, but, um, ultimately those were our three goals. Those were the things that whenever we were faced with a decision about what to do, we would look and say, all right, does it fall into one of these three goals? Well, that's so cool. That was, so guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a yeah. mission statement. Did you, did your kids have screens while you were traveling? Like, they did have. <laughs> <laughs> How could you survive? Yes. So we had, um, I mean, we had, you know, we had to travel light obviously because yeah. we had just each had a backpack. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a laptop, we had an iPad and, um, they each had Kindles and then, Adam and I both had our phones, but well, the Kindles um, actually reduce probably space. The Kindles were, and, and the iPad too, because of just the kinds of books that, um, that Loic, my eight year old is reading, um, was amazing because reading is a big part of what they're doing in school right now. And we want them to read a lot. And, you know, obviously you, reading is great for so many things and traveling with books is awful because they're so heavy. So having those was just really was awesome. And that was really helpful. Um, and I'm so grateful to the Seattle public library for having so many books available online and even books in French. I also had access to 
a library in Quebec that has a gazillion books in French of all levels that we could put on the iPad. So we really, I mean, I feel so lucky that we were able to have those and we had audiobooks that they listened to on these bus rides and plane rides and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So as far as like, you know, they definitely played some video games and they watched movies and stuff, but it wasn't, it didn't have to be just that because we had all this other more like book related content. That's great. Although I'm laughing, I have a friend from college who went to Egypt and stayed in a hostel that didn't, I don't know, there weren't a lot of supplies and he got terrible food poisoning and he did use the books for, he's like, I guess I'm not going to see that family today. Some paper can be useful. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, I mean, it was a little tricky because, um, you know, our son is kind of an emerging reader and he... He said, I really, really rather read books that, you know, real books with pages. And I completely understand because I feel the same way. But, you know, we just couldn't bring a ton of books, especially kids books because they're huge and, you know, awkward and stuff. But um, but there was a moment, I have to confess, <laughs> oh, where we were on a very, very long bus ride in Tanzania. I think it was like 11 hours. And it was, you know, I mean, basically every time we take a bus in Tanzania would be just like instant dehydration because there were few, if any, bathroom stops and the bathroom stops were super short and like they would leave you. I mean, they left people if, I mean, there was no like, oh, well, you know, we'll meet back in 10 minutes. It was just like when the driver's ready, they go. And so we were paranoid, of course, that we were just like, <laughs> dropped in the middle of nowhere so i was like we basically have to drink as little water as possible <laughs> so it just got you know it was, and it was hot and it was uncomfortable because the seats are uncomfortable and all this stuff and um and at one point we're on this bus and we've probably been on it for about seven hours and uh and the kids are sitting on, in their seats in front of us and just you know kind of a greyhound style bus but really really crappy version yeah. <laughs> and uh and they're like playing on the ipad or whatever and this bus stops in the middle of nowhere, a bunch of people get on and an older woman, she was, you know, probably not as old as she seemed, but she, you know, she was probably, I don't know, let's say in her sixties or something. And, uh, and she got on the bus and it was quite customary there for kids just to be put on someone's lap. Like basically like kids don't get their own seat. They're just put on someone's mm-hmm. lap. And so the woman kind of, your kids are uh, older though. They are older. I mean, so it's a little but or, mm-hmm. you know, or just kind of you know, like three, three kids to a seat. And even with adults, I mean, there's a point where it's like, Oh, we just, you know, people got to sit, whatever. And, um, and it wasn't so crowded that everybody was doing that, but this woman got on and I saw her kind of eyeing the kids because like two kids and two seats. I mean, that's just like begging for somebody to, you know, else to sneak in there. And I, I admit that I was sort of like, no, no, no. Like I, they need to have their own spot because they need to be able to manipulate the iPad freely, you know, to have like elbow rooms. I was like, oh my God, what is wrong with me? I'm going to make this old lady like sit in the call, you know, in the, in the, uh, the aisle of this bus because, you know, my kids need to have their elbow room to be able to manipulate their driving game on their iPad. And I was like, oh my God. But, uh, they wouldn't get car sick. They didn't get car sick. My God. I know. I know. If you had a kid who was prone that way. It might have, like, I think no, it really no would have affected it <laughs> be like, we're, we're flying. <laughs> we're not driving. <laughs> Fortunately, most of the roads in Tanzania were like completely straight. Oh, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, that was a moment I was like, 
not my proudest oh, and yet i just kind of you know what i just want to get through the bus ride i just want to be there it's just so alone, uncomfortable yeah. But, yeah but she didn't sit down she didn't end up she kind of like looked and then i think the driver like said something to her which might have been like i just made these white people pay three times more for the ticket so they you know, <laughs> like they get to sit in their seat or whatever um so uh <laughs> yeah it's awesome but we did have other bus rides where we it was just we were all crammed in there together and, you know, Eloise was like half sitting on someone's groceries and then the other half was on her and, um, you know, there was uh, absolutely no personal space and they were hot and uncomfortable and that was it. And that was, you know, there's just like, kind of nothing we do about it. And they yeah. were, you know, they were fine. Yeah. No, that's great. That, if anything, like just, uh, yeah, being comfortable with lack of personal space is a good lesson to learn. So how did you choose what countries or the path that you went on? Um, so loosely, we had started with wanting to go to three countries. We thought we wanted to spend like essentially three months in each country. And then um, we were talking to, we have some good friends who live in, in Tanzania who were, we had met when we lived in Madagascar. And uh, they were like, mm, three months is kind of a long time to live, to be in Tanzania if you're not like living there, you know, if you're just traveling around, like that's, it's kind of a while. So we were like, hmm, okay, maybe we should um, be a little bit less time in each country. And originally we had looked at going to Tanzania, um, Madagascar, and Colombia. Well, it turns out between Madagascar and Colombia, it's very, very far. And yeah. there's lots of countries in the way. So we were like, instead of having like a 72 hour, you know, trip and having to stop in five different places, why don't we stop in five different places, but actually stay for longer? So that's what we ended up doing. So we started out in, in Western Europe and France and my mom is from France. So we go right fairly often and we saw cousins and stuff like that. And then we went to Tanzania for two months and then Madagascar for about a month and a half. Sri Lanka for a little bit over a month, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Colombia. So we had, those are all countries that we'd been interested in going to, um, Tanzania cause we had friends there and I'd never been to East Africa, Madagascar. I really wanted to go back with our kids because they'd heard so much about it. Um, and we still have friends there also, and it was just cool to be able to go again and, yeah. you know, see how it had changed and stuff. Sri Lanka, we had, when we lived in Madagascar, there had been a job that was, that opened up there and we gotten interested in going there. And then that job went away because of the civil war and, uh, Cambodia and Vietnam were both places that we'd been interested in going, but it was more because it was on the way to Colombia between Sri Lanka. And we were like, why not stop there for longer? So, um, so yeah, so it was, it was really it was around the world and then some because Columbia is actually east of Seattle. Mm -hmm. So we went like all the way, you know, circumnavigated and then went a little bit farther east. Uh, and did your kids have requests for countries or? Um, we didn't really leave it up to them yeah. to to tell us, you know, where they wanted to go. I think we kind of decided already where we we're going to go at that point. But um, they were along the way they would hear about certain countries. And um, I think it was the Philippines that they kept hearing, you know, We'd be in Southeast Asia and people would be like, oh, the Philippines is great. And they'd be like, oh, can we go to the Philippines? And we'd say, well, not really, not this time. And then they'd be like, oh, really disappointed. And um, another place that um, I think Loic wanted to go to was Japan. He really wanted mm -hmm. to go to Japan. And I was like, Japan is awesome. Mm -hmm. However, 
our trip to Japan would cost. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. basically, we could go for a year or we could go for a month right. <laughs> in Japan. Right, right, so right. we strategically picked places that were fairly inexpensive yeah. um, so that we could go for as long as we did. But um, But it was cool to see them get excited about places and as you know as we met people and they would talk about different countries they would they would get excited about the idea of going there so um so yeah they definitely open their eyes to all the different places that you can go yeah in the world how did you prep for the homeschooling is that pretty straightforward or what did you what did you need to do for that so for homeschooling um we met with their teachers before we left and oh you didn't just Go. We didn't just go. No. <laughs> Although we did for a brief time think we might have broken the law because I was like, crap, are we supposed to like register and take some class? There's like a whole, you know, Washington Homeschooling yeah, Association right. and you're supposed to do all this stuff. And I was like, oh, no. Um, but then they were like, well, you're not in Washington State, so it doesn't matter. Are you I was sure? Like, yeah. Goodness. Mm-mm. But um, no. So, yeah, before we left, we met with their teachers and explain what we wanted to do and their teachers were wonderful and they were super enthusiastic and encouraging which I was a little bit surprised by I thought they might not be so mm-hmm. enthused but they were like this is great we wish all of our students could do this and uh, they said basically the big things to focus on are math and language arts so reading and writing um, they said you know science and history and social studies and all of that they're going to learn so much on your trip that don't so worry about that stuff um, you know they, they can get that later Although part of me is still like, is Eloise ever going to have learned about the American Revolution? <laughs> I'll just watch a documentary about it at some point. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we did. I mean, they the teachers said, you know, this is the curriculum that we're using for each, you know, for the different grades. And so we bought those books. We just bought them and physically carried them, which was mm-hmm. heavy and annoying. But it was way easier than having to just invent a math curriculum or go online and stuff and try to print things out. Um, and then the big thing we did for language arts was, you know, we had them read and, um, some, you know, do some reading comprehension stuff, but we also had them do these presentations, these video presentations or PowerPoint presentations on the places that we went. So, um, for Loic, his theme was 11 things to know about, whatever country we were in. So 11 things to know about Tanzania, 11 things to know about Cambodia. And he would, um, you know, he would make a list and he would write it out by hand. So that was like practicing spelling and grammar and handwriting and all that stuff. And then because they are bilingual, they, he would write it either first in French and then translate it in English or vice versa. He said at one point he was like, well, if the country is a French-speaking country, because it's a former French colony, I'll start, I'll make like the main language French. But it's if it's an English-speaking country or from a British colony, then I'll write it in English. So mm-hmm. he had his like little way to do it. Um, and then he would have to find the images to support it. So either, you know, we'd make a list of pictures that we needed or we'd find video mm-hmm. from stuff that we had done. And then he would voice it. So we would record I would record him on this very same app that we're mm-hmm. using right now and um and so they kind of had to learn how to use a um, public speaking voice and mm-hmm. you know from the first videos that he did to the last one you can really hear the change he was sort of very timid and sounded like a little kid in the mm-hmm. beginning and then at the end he's very confident and um and uh and then they learned how to edit so they you know, I, we, they just worked on the laptop and I would show them how to, you know, cut and paste and put it into the timeline and then put the images and, and pacing and adding music and stuff. And then we would make the subtitles in either French or English, depending on the sort of original language. And, and, uh, and it was a really cool 
I mean, they loved doing that. They were so excited to do that. They wanted to do it all the time. And Eloise did this awesome five minute documentary about the African elephant that, uh, when we were in Tanzania, she did all the research on her own. We'd, you know, found books on the, the library on the iPad and she mm-hmm. did a bunch of research, wrote out all her stuff on little index cards and then organized it based on theme. And then she wrote out the script in a very narrative kind of way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then she voiced it. And then, um, because we went on a few safaris, we were able to film tons of footage and actually almost all of the footage in her documentary is stuff that we shot ourselves, oh, um, which was super cool. And yeah, and, and so they did things like that and it was really neat to have them, you know, they were excited about doing it. And Eloise would say, oh, I want to do a presentation on Sigiriya, which is this cool rock formation in Sri Lanka or, um, an idea that actually her teacher from school from North Seattle French school had suggested was, um, to inter- do interviews with kids in the different countries we were in. So she did an interview with a little girl in Vietnam and a little girl in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that was really, you know, it was fun just to try to see how to share the experience that they were in some way. And, um, now when I look back at them, I'm just like, Oh my God, like, she was sitting in this like Bunong, you know, traditional home in Cambodia. They're like an ethnic minority, like on the border with Vietnam and, you know, in this traditional house. And she's just, and it was like 120 degrees and she's sitting across from this little girl and they're just chatting. I mean, via translator, but like, this was totally normal, like not so long ago that this was our world. And it's very cool to sort of have that real, like a very tangible, intangible reminder Oh, it's awesome. I've been able to read through most of them. I think it was fascinating. And yeah, Loic's insights were really thoughtful and funny. And they were also like a kid. Like it was perfect. And the two interviews with Eloise, I don't know. It was just really interesting how uh, adult's not the right word, but she was very comfortable with herself. I think most kids at that age, I don't know. I just, that could be a very intimidating situation. And she was super comfortable with it. So how did you find, for example, like the little girl in Cambodia? So the little girl in Cambodia was, um, the daughter of, um, a guide that we had. So mm-hmm. we had, uh, done this, um, this excursion, um, where this guide, like he'll basically take you to his home village and you kind of go around and sort of see how people live and stuff. And, um, and while we were driving out there, I said to him, Hey, you know, we're, my daughter's doing, wants to do an interview. Is there any chance, you know, anyone? Um, cause we sort of had a built in translator. That was a big part of it. Um, and he was like, Oh, well my daughter is, you know, she's kind of the same age. And so she, he asked her, and I think she was a little bit like, what? Like she wasn't so sure at first. And then, and, uh, but then we had lunch with them and then I think they, you know, I mean, it was like, five minutes. It's yeah. really short. But, um, the funny thing was, and this happened in Vietnam also was, um, it was really hard to get the adult to not answer for the kids. Um, it seems like the kids spoke a little bit of English, the kids, a little bit of English, but really what I, what I wanted to, what I tried to explain to the translator who was usually the parent was, and this is a hard skill for anyone to do. It's like, they're not a professional translator, but I said, you know, really just translate what she is saying. And they almost never did that. You know, they would, and, and I don't speak Bunong and I don't speak mm. Vietnamese, so I don't know exactly what they were saying, but you know, you hear the sort of side conversation and you know that there's more that's, you know, they're like, oh, and then this and this and this. And, and it's like, 
and yeah, but I can eat you, porridge. Exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, it's ideally, you know, the parent, what I explained to Ellis is I said, ideally, you know, you ask a question and the translator says exactly what you said. And then the girl answers and the translator translates exactly what she said to you. So that's, so you guys are really talking to each other, but inevitably there would be, you know, they would, he would be like, Oh, and then this, and then she also does this or then blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I mean, we did the best we could, but, um, I do, regret a little bit that we never got a chance to interview a kid in Colombia because I speak Spanish. So I could have been the translator and really got, I think beyond that, but, um, you know, but it was, uh, it was, it was fun to see how that played out. And to your point about her being seeming fairly comfortable, that was a definite bonus that we got from this trip that it was not something I was expecting at all, but our kids became incredibly comfortable talking to all kinds of different mm-hmm. people and communicating with people who often there was no common language between them. Mm-hmm. But whether it was like at a restaurant, they had to, you know, order their own food or we'd go to a store and I would say, okay, we'll go and buy a yogurt or go and, you know, you want to buy that? We'll go, we'll go mm-hmm. and figure out, you know, how much it costs and, you know, bargain if you have to. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, or talking to other travelers who were from other countries and, you know, maybe didn't speak English or French so well. So they really became comfortable with, putting themselves out there to be able to be understood and to communicate with people. And that's almost, I don't want to say the best thing about this trip, but definitely really, really high up there in terms of a benefit that came from that, that I, I had not anticipated at all. And now they, you know, they meet adults and they'll walk right up to them and look them in the eye and stick out their hand and said, hi, I'm Eloise and I'm 10. You know, what's your name? And, you know, they learn how to make conversation with people. They learn how to, how to exchange. They learn how to, to get people's attention when they're not the obvious, you know, person that the person would expect to see come into their store. You know, they, they were able to get people's attention and to communicate clearly. So I think I really liked that about the trip. It's amazing. I think is like eight. Mm-hmm. So like an eight and a 10 year old, the average American kid just isn't doing that. Yeah. And it's not, it's not because you have like whipped them air quote into shape to be like, <laughs> like my mom did like shake hands. I mean, we tried that before, but sure, it's really hard. <laughs> right. But yeah. it's just the exposure. You don't, if you want to have any contact with people then you gotta. Exactly. To and part of it too, is that, um, mm-hmm. here in our culture in the U S we don't expect kids to do that. You know, we do, I mean, there is the, what you're describing, you know, they're, you know, it's like, okay, you know, say hi, you know, no, introduce yourself. But, but we are, we really infantilize kids so much here in terms of just not expecting them to, to not even behave like an adult, but just sort of do adult things. And, you know, the perfect example is in every single country that we went to, kids were doing adult things like buying groceries mm-hmm. or picking up you know, running errands for their families when they were like as young as six or seven. And so when a seven-year-old in Colombia walks into a little store, the people behind the counter aren't like, oh, where's your mommy? Or what are you lost? Or what's happening? They're like, oh, hello, can I help you? Mm -hmm. You were a customer. And so that allowed our kids to have that experience of walking into a store and being taken seriously and people, you know, even if there was a language barrier, you know, taking the time to listen, like Eloise one at one point, we were in Colombia, we were staying in this little colonial town. And just down the street, there was a little like, you know, vegetable store 
stand. Um, and I was like, can you go down and buy two limes? And she was like, okay. And I mean, we'd been there for in Colombia for two weeks. She doesn't really speak Spanish, but she was like, yeah, you know, French, we'll just throw it, you know, see, see what happens. Sort it out. Um, and, uh, and I think she'd actually asked me how to say lime. And this is a thing I always forget is that I think in Spain they say lima mm -hmm. for lime, but in Colombia, at least they say limon, which is the same word as for lemon. And I don't know how do they know the difference? And maybe they're, I mean, I don't think I actually saw what I would consider a lemon in Colombia, oh, like a yellow a lemon. lemon. I don't know. It's very confusing, but everything was a limon, right? Mm -hmm. Every citrusy, greenish, yellowish thing was a limon. So anyway, so she goes, she like disappears, you know, and then she comes back like 10 minutes later, whatever, with limes. She's all flushed and she's all excited and sparkly eyed. I was like, how did, how is it? How was it? And she's like, well, first I asked him for lima. And he kind of was confused and he was like pointing to stuff. And I was like, no, not that. And then finally I saw them and I said, oh, those, those. And he was like, ah, oh, limon. And I was like, okay, limon. And, but it's like the fact that this man in this, you know, store, he's taking seriously this 10 year old girl is walking in and wants to buy something. And instead of being like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? I'll like, there were other people there who were waiting and he was taking her seriously because she was a customer and she was clearly there to buy something. And it was important that he you know, serve her as he would any customer. And so that really gave them the opportunity to do that and to feel confident and feel, you know, like, Hey, I can, I can do this. I can go into a store and buy stuff. Unlike here where we're at Fred Meyer, our giant supermarket where we go to all the time. And I send them to the deli counter to get some, you know, cold cuts or whatever child protective services and well there the guy the person at the counter doesn't even see them no. i mean they're standing there and they're watching it's like okay we came after this lady so after her after her turn you know and they're waiting patiently and they're sort of like okay and then the guy's like all right who's next and they're like and they start you know and they're little you know they're like um excuse me and then somebody just barrels it. oh yeah okay yeah i'll have a pound of the jet you know cheddar or whatever and i i was watching from a distance and i was getting so angry i was like they, can you consider them as, as people? But the fact is that we don't do that very much in, in this environment anyway. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I'm sure there's other communities in the U.S. where kids do do a lot more stuff, but not mm -hmm. in our, you know, in our Seattle world. We don't expect kids to do that. Or as you say, it's like, where's your mom? You know, why are you, are you here by yourself? Are you okay? Should we call someone? And, and um, obviously it's important to do that, to be concerned with that too. But the idea that kids are capable of doing a lot of things and that we should take them seriously was that was actually, it was much harder to get, to give my kids that experience here than it was in any so of the other countries that we went to. I hadn't thought about that at all, but it makes so much sense. Kids just have to, um, in a lot of places and they're encouraged. The culture supports that. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, and yeah. the fact that, you know, I was thinking if the opposite, if it's the opposite situation and a parent from another country where the kid doesn't speak English is being brought here and the parent is like, go and, you know, buy a watermelon or whatever, it would be nearly impossible for them to do that because the culture doesn't support that and the kid doesn't speak the language. Whereas right. in the opposite situation, you know, my kid goes to Colombia, she doesn't speak any Spanish and she walks in and the person is willing to take the time with her to understand what it is that she wants because even with the language barrier and yeah. the cultural barrier. So, um, that was a, a really interesting comparison and something that made me a little like, 
a little sad about our culture here that we don't, you know, we don't encourage that. But, you know, I think it's also circumstantial. And I also told my kids, I warned them, I said, you know, in America, people don't, they don't think that kids can do stuff like this. So if you go to the deli counter, you have to manifest yourself. You know, you have to wave, you have to ask another adult. I was saying this to a friend of ours who's asked his son to go and do that too. And his son's figured out that he, he will find another adult in line and say, Hey, Mm -hmm. excuse me, can you make sure that the person knows that I'm next? (laughs) And then of course, then he has an ally, you know, and that adult's like, you bet, you know, like it's, I'm going to watch this guy like a hawk. And as soon as it's your turn, I'll be like, Hey, 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 he was here. You know, he needs to order some stuff, but, but you know, you, it's like, you have to advocate for yourself. So, um, that's something that they have to learn too. It's terrible that what popped into my mind was like sitting outside of a liquor store at age 18 and trying to get somebody to buy (laughs) you're like please (laughs) um well yeah that it's a fascinating i hadn't thought about that and it makes so much sense so you already described like the 11 hour bus ride um in tanzania um i'm sure there were many other uncomfortable moments as like that's part of the process but how did you enable your kids to be calm and sort of zen throughout the experience I try and I think about trying to get my four-year-old to to do that I just I don't know how I could how I could do it so what did you well part of it is that they're not four right (laughs) I mean timing is a huge part of it too you know they were old enough that you know they're already a lot more they're able to entertain themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to entertain each other. They Another sort of huge side benefit that I hadn't conceived of that was amazing from this trip is that they became very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. And they figured out, I think, that they just kind of had to be. I mean, they've always gotten along. They haven't really been very bickery. But, um, but you know, spending that much time with anyone, you could think that they would just sort of kill each other at one point. But um, instead, they became really close and they invented all these games and they would just like talk for hours and hours, like kind of inventing these stories. Um, so that was part of it. But I think ultimately, you know, we would t- tell them in advance, like, okay, this is how we're going to get to this place. Cause often there was no other option. It was just like, you either take a bus or you don't go to that place. And, and, um, and they would ask, you know, how long is it going to be? And we'd say, well, they say it's going to be five hours, but who knows, right. you know, and they were like, yeah, sometimes it's 11. <laughs> I mean, they were <laughs> well, just they'd like, been, they'd already they, been, exposed, they'd to been exposed to it. And, um, <laughs> and you know, they, and we did, you know, we, we resorted to screens. I mean, we were like, yeah. this is what they are for. Yeah. This is literally why the iPad was invented in my opinion mm-hmm. is to give it to when you're a situation where you're like, we have no control, you know, we don't know how long this is going to take. It's hot, uncomfortable. It's just like, we're just trying to get through it. Yeah. You know, there's not like a, the, the teaching moment is the environment in itself. Um, and, but sometimes the iPad would die, you know, or sometimes, uh, you know, and then it was the fact that it's, I think the great part of that situation was that, you know, here in our Seattle world, it seems like we adults have all the power all the time. We have control over everything. And so we can say no, or we can say, we can give them, we can say yes to this or no to this in, you know, in a, seven hour bus ride in Cambodia where we can practically see the road under the, under our feet. (sighs) If the iPad dies, there's nothing to do. And they can say the iPad died and we go, yeah, that's too bad. And, and there's, they don't even ask like, well, can we plug it in? Cause it's like, well, we'll look around you where do you even plug it in? (laughs) So it's not like we're withholding something from them. It was just the natural consequences of the place we were. I mean, same Mm -hmm. thing with like forgetting your flip-flops, you know, at one point, you know, I mean, we all forgot our flip flops 
God knows how many places we like went through so many pairs of flip-flops, but you know, it's like, okay, well now you only have one pair of shoes and that's it. And you know, will they make my feet hurt? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. That sucks. But there's nothing to do about it. So I think that was the education part of it. That was the, the, it wasn't even us. I mean, I'm sure our attitude had part to do with it mm-hmm. where we were, we were also putting ourselves in that situation. And, you know, sometimes I'd be like, Oh, I forgot my Kindle in my backpack and now I don't have anything to read during this 19 hour bus ride. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I can't, it's, you know, and they would be like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, they'd be like really sympathetic. I mean, what, it was great to be able to really be sympathetic to them when something like that they would happen. They weren't going to give you theirs though. <clears throat> no. <laughs> Although sometimes they'd be like, Oh, do you want to listen to this audiobook with us? You know, oh, which was nice. really sweet. Yeah. But, um, but it was, it sort of, you know, because that, that dynamic of control was gone, it allowed us all to be, you know, our mistakes were just ours, but it also took away a little bit from being like, well, if you listen to me, you know, you're just right. like, Oh, you forgot your flip flops. Oh, I'm sorry. Empathy, yeah, that's too yeah. empathy because then it's like they, you can't. It's not me who's like preventing them from having more. Like, well, I'm not going to buy you more because you should have known. It's mm. just like there's no flip flops around. So right, you know. Now you. So don't the have circumstances helped, I guess. Yeah. Um, but they could still choose to. I know they're out of tantrum phase, but they could still choose to get like really mad or upset about it or something. Yeah, I suppose they could have, but I think also. Um, you know, you just look around and you're like, everyone else yeah. is on this bus and nobody else is whining. I mean, that's that's the sobering part of it. We, we talked with them about how we want to be aware of how we're representing ourselves and representing mm-hmm. our culture or our, our country of where we come from. You know, we we talked about how, you know, we're traveling in a lot of places where our president has maybe not said very nice things about the people who are there from there. And so, you know, we wanted to be really aware of how we were presenting ourselves as American or as French or both, you know, and even that was part of it too. It's like you, you know, we're from this country, but we have this other background too. And we speak another language and sort of, you know, we wanted to put kind of put our best foot forward. And so we wanted, we talked a lot about how it was important to respect the place that we were. So, you know, we would be in markets sometimes like, in Tanzania or Madagascar, particularly where there's like a lot of very strong smells and we would warn them before we're like, you are not to ever cover your nose. Mm-hmm. I don't care how bad it smells, you know, or like grimace this, or... or grimace or go like, Ooh, you know, anything that would manifest. And even if it does, and I, and sometimes we'd be walking and they'd be like, Oh my God, it smells really bad in here. And I'd be like, <laughs> I know, let's take a right, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but, but even, or, you know, we'd go to a temple in Sri Lanka and there would just be this cacophonous, like banging of gongs and like playing these like, you know, like flutes and stuff. And they would cover their ears. And I would be like, don't you dare cover your ears. I know this is hurting your ears, but we are going to sit here because this is their culture. And it would be so rude to imply that this, uh, you know, we, we get to, we can leave if we don't like it, but we're not going to sort of impose our judgment of, you know, we're guests here. So we need to respect that. And, um, and I think they really got that. And, and, and just, you know, again, seeing people around them just living their lives through that and, and being, you know, they, they were drawing enough attention that I think they didn't want to draw more attention, Mm. you know, so they were aware of not wanting to seem like, you know, a spoiled little, you know, rich kid, like, ew, 
gross. There's like water on the ground or, you know, we, we kind of joked about that. We kind of pretended like a character about that. You know, the person who would be like, um, there's going to be a hairdryer in my hut in, you know, the Tanzanian national park. Right. And they'd be like, no, there's not even any electricity. And I'd be like, what? what? That's impossible. And they'd be like, you don't even get to poop in a real toilet. It's just a hole in the ground. And I'd be like, Oh, that's terrible. So like we sort of created, yeah, yeah. you know, pretended to kind of joke about it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think they also got excited about the challenge part of it where we were like, you know, a lot of people can't do this. You yeah. know, a lot of people cannot, you know, if they aren't in an air conditioned vehicle, they just can't do it. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of too bad because then they don't get to go to these yeah. places. And, you know, so we did kind of hype that up about how, you know, part of the, the challenge was also the opportunity that, you know, said you guys can put up with anything and that means you can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, how cool is that? You know? So were you, uh, congratulate, were you praising them for putting up with anything? Is that what? It was? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, um, First, I mean, one of the big things, and this is a conversation I've had a lot with my husband, who is, when we met, we did bike trips together. We were both guides. And I, I mean, I like riding a bike, but I'm not like, you know, a cyclist. Mm-hmm. I don't like go and do a ton of it. Yeah. And he, when, he, when I would go, but he is, he loves cycling. And he and I would go on these bike rides. And of course, he's like just blazing ahead of me on these hills, you know, and like, I'd be going up. You know, I finally get to the top and I'd be like, wow, that was, uh, that was tough. And he'd be like, ah, it wasn't so bad. And I'd be like, I am going to push you off of this cliff. Yeah. It was hard like, for me. It was hard for me. And I'm not like whining about it. I'm not like being like, I hate you for making me do this. I'm saying, I am stating, it's like being like, I'm very hot. You know, yeah. I'm not trying to make you do something about it, but I'm just stating it. And, um, but his thing was to be like, ah, eh, you're fine. Um, which of course made me want to whine and complain about it. So when we would be in these situations where, you know, we were uncomfortable in some way or another, I would really try to, like, if the kids would say something and we talked about the difference between statements and whining. And they really understood that the difference between saying, Ooh, I am so hot right now versus I'm hot. Yep. You know, I was like, first one, totally fine. And if you say that, I'll be like, I know. Right. And, and it's, it is because it is really hot, Mm -hmm. but then the difference between I'm making a statement about how I feel physically versus I'm, I'm asking you for something, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, that's where you're like, well, there's nothing I can do about you being hot, you know? So that was sort of, again, that part of the, having the environment sort of just be the consequence in itself. So, so we did talk about, you know, the difference between, you know, we talked about not whining and, and, but how making statements about discomfort. And so when they, yeah, when they would put up with something or, or just be in a situation that wasn't comfortable or that was long or that was awkward or, you know, weird food or whatever, just always acknowledging their, what they were experiencing. Cause we didn't want to shut them down. And so if they were like, this is really spicy. I'd be like, Oh yeah, it is really spicy. Okay. It's like, well, you know, do you want, and I'd be like, do you want to try see if there's something else? And often they'd be like, no, it's okay. You know, or, uh, and, and so, so that they knew that like by manifesting themselves, they weren't going to get shut down, but that I, it's like, I was, you know, we're kind of on the same team, but at the same time, the circumstance is what it is. And we can't, we're not just going to not do the thing that we're doing because, you know, 
it's we're tired or you know we're hot or whatever it was yeah oh i i love that and you can yeah the 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 situation enabled you to do that yeah that's but that also just great parenting technique anyway (laughs) well thank you i mean that's i think something we learned um when we would do backpacking with our kids because we love doing that and um you know my also maybe just because i'm not like an extreme person. I'm like, yeah, three miles is great. You know, three miles, put your bag down and then we're good. Um, but my feeling was, yeah, when you're hiking and if you're tired and stuff, like you're allowed to say that. And if the people you're with are always sort of shutting you down, like, Oh, shut up, you know, stop whining or stop doing this. It creates this. Then I think it does create a dynamic where one person it's like, they have all the control and you don't. And then that just basically encourages the whining because you're like, you're the one who's making me do this. Right. Or you're the one who has the capacity to make this not suck because right. you don't think it sucks. So clearly, like you, you know, have some power that I don't. Whereas when you're all sort of in the same situation and you're like, yeah, this is hard. Yeah, this is, you know, it is tired. And, you know, I think, ah, I, you know, I think in a little bit we can maybe stop and take a break or we can, you know, we have a snack or something. And as a parent, obviously, you always have a little bit more resources than sure. they do. But to not just make it always about like the right thing to do is to shut up and love everything. Yes. And the wrong thing to do is to manifest any discomfort because then they're never going to want to do anything that they're uncomfortable with because they're like not allowed to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, oh, I'd love that. That's that's really smart. I, yeah, I have about 20 million more questions on that, but, um, <laughs> but, but so, uh, the other side note, what did you do on a 19 hour trip when your Kindle was in the luggage? Like, did you find yourself thinking about certain things or planning or yes. going into a state of, I don't know, mindfulness? Mindfulness. That- <laughs> um, sometimes, so sometimes I would, um, you know, just let my mind wander, which was lovely. Um, and you know, just stare out the window and, um, just have a chance to not, to think about stuff without it being like a programmed thought, you know, I mean, here in our lives here, there's always a gazillion things. And, and part of, I think the trap is that, you know, I'd be like here just normally in my life here, I'd be like, I wonder if I have the right, uh, carpet pad for that carpet in the living room, you know, maybe I should. And then immediately I'm like, well, let me, let's see what's online. Right. Like I immediately have a place that I can go for that information. Whereas on our trip, I might think of that, but then I'd be like, I'm not going to find that out for a while. So it's kind of like, well, might as well move. Yeah. It's, it just, it made it really easy to just not think about things that weren't important because there was nothing to do about them. Mm -hmm. There was just nothing to be done. So, um, and sometimes I would think, you know, I would think about friends or I think about, you know, s- just memories and things like that. And then sometimes they were very specific thoughts about like, I basically like remodeled our bathroom in my head, you know, where I was like, okay, so if we put the sink here and, you know, that was very unmindful. It was very not at all in the environment that we were in, you know, we're on like a bus ride in Colombia, like in this coffee country. And I'm, I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing all this beautiful landscape but I'm also kind of working on something in my head that was actually kind of fun and interesting. And I actually came away with something like I I actually had a plan afterwards. It wasn't completely a waste of time. So it was, uh, it was sort of a combination, a combination of just being like, you know, I'm just going to sort of stare out the window and just zone out, um, or, you know, listen to an audio book, which is awesome, or, you know, make this plan in my head for something or often. Um, so, Eloise, our daughter, she could listen to an audiobook all day and all night. Um, and Loic, he would, you know, maybe listen for a while. And then after a while, he'd be kind of like, ah, he'd, he'd come over. He'd be like, 
can we talk? Oh. And I'd be like, okay, what do you want to talk about? And then, and then he would want to get into this. We, we sort of started imagining like, you know, what if your bedroom had a slide in it? Or, you know, what if there was like a trap door in your top bunk bed? And then you could, you know, you sort of just get into this, you know, sort of fantasy world. And, um, but he would also want to talk about stuff like, you know, maybe occasionally a thing that a thing or two that happened over the last school year with some friends or just something that you could sense he was kind of working on, like a dynamic that he kind of had felt a little uncomfortable about, you know, maybe there's like some, some kids who were, not mean to him, but sort of not always very nice. And, but he didn't necessarily want to play with them because he didn't really like what they were playing, but he sort of felt excluded mm. and he was sort of struggling with yeah, that a little yeah. bit. So, so then we had an opportunity to talk about, you know, clicks, for example. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, those three boys and you've played with them all individually and, you know, they're, you've had a nice time with them one on one, but sometimes when people get together, they become bigger than the sum of their parts and it becomes like a bigger thing. And, you know, and we talked about, you know, just a sort of different people dynamics. And sometimes, you know, people are mean because they're insecure, you know, this mm -hmm. sort of thing. But that was one of the best parts of the trip for me was the time that we had to talk about these sort of bigger topics mm -hmm. that you don't have time to talk about in our lives here. Yeah. I mean, you know, or often it's like such a short window and you're like, Ooh, I got to make sure that he knows that, you know, bullies have been bullied or, you know, there's like a <laughs> lesson to be made oh, in yeah, that. Yeah. And on our trip, it was just sort of this fast open-ended time. And so we'd have, we talk about stuff over days, you know, and it wouldn't necessarily always be like a full conclusion or like one day, um, we were riding scooters around in Sri Lanka in the Northern part of Sri Lanka. And of course, of course, as one does. And, uh, but we were on these little country roads. So it was slow enough that I had Eloise on the back of my scooter and we could talk. And, uh, she asked me about like, she was like, did you have any boyfriends before Papa? Oh, and I was like, great. yes, there was life before him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she asked me about them. And so it gave me an opportunity to sort of, you know, start talking about that and different kinds of relationships and, you know, the nice boyfriends and the ones that were kind of jerks or, you know, just sort of all those different things that were, it was in a really just natural way. And, and, you know, we talked about puberty and we talked about growing up and we talked about, you know, when I got my first period and sort of mm -hmm. things that are kind of were on her mind, but not in this sort of like programs, like now we're going to sit down and talk about what it means to become a woman. And, and, and it just, I feel like it gave us both a chance it gave me a chance to explain things that were complicated and also to share with her stuff about me but also really as to have a moment where we could really connect in a in a very rare and precious way oh my gosh um, everybody should have birds and the bees talks on exactly every now and then take a pause you kind of yeah. like look at stuff and then yeah yeah <laughs> that's awesome well, thank you. That was a really thoughtful answer. And um, it's really nice to talk to, about it in light of the time that you've just spent. So um, thank you again. And I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Hopefully I'll get to interview you around the work that you do as a, as a video editor and producer. Yeah, I'd love that too. Well, thanks for all your fun questions. It was nice to reflect on the trip this way too.